welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. Good morning. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 14. Genesis 14. A special welcome to all of our, our guests this morning. I hope you're able to find a seat. We had it kind of crowded a bit this morning, but uh, I see someone move the ropes, thankfully. Um, my father, Bryant Crane, uh, sends his greeting to all of you. He's not here this morning because he's preaching in Sedgefield, uh, filling in for one of the missionaries who's on furlough there. So he says hello, but he will have to see you maybe next week, if not, or not, if not in the week as well. Um, Our passage this morning, Genesis 14, is a passage that is honestly uh, so rich and deep that I struggled with how to present it to you this morning in hopefully less than 50 minutes. Um, I found myself during the week feeling completely inadequate to even present this material as a lot of it was for me the first time that I really wrestled with the depth of some of these truths. Um, At first, it may just seem like another historical account, almost like a history book of some famous battle, but as you you slow down and as you look at some of the specifics in this passage, um, you begin to see that this is, is not just some history book. This is actually a story written by the master storyteller, and his story begins with the creation of time itself and will continue through eternity. So as we're reading through the Old Testament especially, um, we should be careful not to, not to fall into this, I guess, default of just thinking of it as a history book. Because that type of thinking insults the genius of the master storyteller, the one who even gave us the ability to tell stories and gave us the ability to love and appreciate stories. So as we dive into this, please realize there's a lot here. I will not be able to get to all of it, but my hope is to at least whet your taste to go back and discover more about this passage. Um, Throughout this masterpiece I've been hinting at, I've been talking about the story of God. God hints at the coming of a person who will bring the story to its climax and through to its final resolution. So throughout the Old Testament even, there are hints of a person who is coming. And Genesis 14 is one of those passages that hints at the greatness of the hero of the story, of our story. It hints at the identity of the ultimate priest king. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning, the priest king. So let's go to the Lord in prayer ask Him for His help to understand these things. (coughs) Heavenly Father, thank You so much that You love us and that You have left us Your Word, which is not just a book of rules or of do's and don'ts, and it's definitely not just a history book, but instead it is Your letter to Your people that we might know You and that through knowing You we would begin to love You more and more. Lord, would You do this today? Would you please help me and help all here hearing this morning? Would your spirit give us the ability to grasp what is in your word? Lord, would you overcome our weaknesses? Would you overcome my inability to fully explain this? And Lord, would you be glorified through it all as we together rejoice in who you are and what you are doing in the earth? Would you do this for your glory and our joy? Amen. So before we jump into this passage, let me give you some background information so that at least the historical bit, this military campaign we're about to read about, so that it at least makes a little bit more sense. Over the past few weeks, we have focused on the faith and failings of Abram. I mean, we've been walking through some of the highlights and some of the low points of his life, and we could say that sometimes he's a man of faith and sometimes he's more a man of failure. But we've been focusing on this, and we've been seeing, though, even through his faith and his failure, God has chosen to use this specific family to bring a blessing to all nations. 
Abram is now dwelling in the land of Canaan as a foreigner. But through the years, God has blessed him and given him some prestige and influence even in this land, even though he's a a sojourner, a foreigner in the land. And in Genesis 14, we find Abram living just south of a city called Salem. Now, this city, Salem, is an older name for what what we know as Jerusalem. So it will later be called Jerusalem. So he's living just south of this near the Oaks of Mamre, one of his friends. And if you remember from last week, his nephew Lot, who is kind of like a son to him, has been, they've separated and, they, and he is now living in Sodom in the Jordan Valley, which is around the Dead Sea area, the southern part of the Dead Sea. So they're, they're close, but they're separated from one another. But in Genesis 14, where we find Abram, we've been reading a lot about his family and the difficulties of his family. But in in Genesis 14, it's going to zoom out of these family difficulties. And it's going to show us what's going on in the kingdoms of the world at this time. We're going to read about four powerful kings to the northeast. Think modern day Syria, Iraq, and Iran. So these kings, there's going to be some... Some crazy names this morning. I'm going to do my best to get through them. But when you hear about the powerful northern kings, and I'll try to point them out, they're, in, they're from Syria, Iraq, and Iran. And these powerful kings have subjugated some of these weaker kings in Canaan. All right? Each major city in Canaan seems to have its own like local tribal king who rules a, an area around a city. But they're not as strong as these almost empires to the north. Now, these weaker kings to the south, these kings of Canaan, have been paying tribute to this, these powerful kings up in the north in order to keep the peace. They're like, we're weak. Possibly those empires came down and had defeated them before. And now they're saying, hey, every year we'll send, you know, 12 truckloads of or you know wagon full sorry wagons filled with you know precious spices like animals whatever it is they're paying tribute to these guys up north but after 12 years these weaker kings of Canaan say enough is enough you're bleeding us dry and they rebel against the empires to the north and for one whole year these northern powerhouses just gather all their forces. They take a whole year just to get all of their soldiers and their, and their supplies together. And we're about to read how they now begin a military campaign through Canaan, beginning in the north, traveling through all the way to the south. So that's what we're about to read. I'm going to throw up some maps. Now I know it's too small for you to see the names and all this, but at least you might get some of an idea of how these guys up in the northeast are coming together north of Damascus and they're going to travel through the whole length of Canaan. So I apologize if you can't see it. I was trying to give you some kind of geographical idea of all of these names. All right, Genesis 14. Let's go ahead and read this passage together. If you don't know where the names are at, I'm going to try my best to just give us a keep us all in the same place. Verse 1, In the days of Amraphel king of Shinar, Ariok king of Alasar, Kedor Leomer king of Alam, and Tidal king of Goim. In the days of these kings, these are the northern powerful kings. Verse 2, These kings made war with Bera king of Sodom, Bersha king of Gomorrah, Shinab king of Adma, Shimabur king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, the five weaker kings in Canaan. Verse 3, and all these joined forces in the valley of Sinem, that is the Salt Sea, or we call it the Dead Sea. So this is a, almost an introduction to what we're about to read. Powerful kings are going to fight with weaker kings around the south of the Dead Sea. Okay, let's read verse 4. Twelve years the weaker kings in the south had served Kedor Lamer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Kedar Lamer, I'm trying my best to say that name, and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim. So now he's taken a whole year to gather his forces. And as you see on the map, that red line is him traveling north to south through the land. 
and he's going to list all the kingdoms and kings that he defeats in his campaign. He says, he came and he defeated the Rephaim, those are the giants, the Rephaim and Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, and the Emim and Sheveh, Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. He has just hit major cities going all the way south, and he has hit the south of this map up here, and let's hear what happens next. Then they turned back and came to Enmishpath, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Verse 8. So he has come, he has made this loop coming back to the Dead Sea now. Verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim. This is a valley just south of the Dead Sea. So, strategically, what he has done is he has these rebellious kings, five kings in Canaan. And what, this, what this, these empires really are doing is they're coming down through Canaan on the, on the east side of the Jordan River, and they are taking out anybody who could help them. They're coming through, they're establishing their authority over the region, and they're just wiping out anyone who might come to these rebellious kings' aid. And if they surrender, you know, you just say, okay, that's fine. If they don't, if they fight back, you crush them. That's what they have done. So now they're coming to the main purpose of their campaign. So they joined battle, verse 9, with Kedar Lamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar. Shinar is where Babylon is. And Ariok, king of Elasser. Four kings from the north against the five weaker kings. Verse 10. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, they've lost. They're fleeing. As they flee, some fell into these pits, and the rest fled to the hill country. Anyone who survived the battle fled out of the valley to the hill country on either side. Verse 11. So the enemy, the kings from the north, took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Verse 12. They also, looked, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, and the, he, the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkel and Aner. These were allies of Abram. Verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So this is showing on the map again. Abram hears... His nephew Lot has been taken. And he responds by chasing down this army that's going back home. They're headed back north. And he's trying to catch up to them. And it says that he catches them in Dan, which is at the northern part of our map here. This is approximately a 200 kilometer or 200 kilometer um, pursuit across the, the, to the north of Canaan. Verse 15. This is when he catches up to them. And he, Abram, divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedar Lamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, meet Abram, at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. So the king, king of Sodom has been hiding in the hills and he hears Abram has won and he's coming back with all this possession, all these people. And so he, this king of Sodom leaves his, his hiding place in the caves to come meet um, Abram near Salem. This valley it's talking about, the king's valley is near Salem. But listen at verse 18. And Melchizedek... King of Salem, remember, Jeru Salem, that's what the name will be. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, 
possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be, the God, be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. It's a saying that means I have sworn an oath to God. I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anar, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. Until there. Well, we made it all the way through together. But we have to ask this question. Why did God, the author of the Bible, why did God put Genesis 14 in the Scriptures? Why is Genesis 14 recorded for all generations? Well, today I will attempt to show you why by looking at three priest kings. Three priest kings. The first is Abram, a priest king. We see that when Abram was first called by God to go to the land of Canaan, Abram heard God, so God spoke to Abram, and Abram heard God, he communicated with God, Abram obeyed God, he built altars and sacrificed animals to God, and Abram taught his household about God. For all intents and purposes, Abram has been operating as a priest to God in Canaan. And as far as the reader uh, initially knows, he is the only one in the land. I mean, Abram, everywhere he goes, he pretty much gives this understanding or this fear that there's no fear of God in this place. He, keep, he says that. That's one of the reasons he told his wife to say, you're my sister, because he was afraid he was going to die because no one feared God in Canaan. That's at least what the reader knows at this point. But now in Genesis 14, we see that Abram is, is, is not the only, sorry, is not only a priest, but he's also a king. That is what Genesis 14 is primarily about, that, his, that historical campaign of his defeat of his empires. He is operating as a king. Verse 14 tells us that there were 318 trained warriors who were born in his household. These were the young men who were fit for battle and were able to run most likely 200 kilometers to the north to chase down this, this army. And when you add to these 318 men their wives, their children... And their parents, because it says they were born into Abram's house. So there was also parents to these men. When you add th these people together, we're, talk we're easily talking about a thousand people who are in the household of Abram. And so Abram is a ruler of a small kingdom of, a th of somewhere around the figure of a thousand people easily. And he leads them as a priest king before God. Abram doesn't rule over Canaan. He's not ruling over the land yet. But in Genesis chapter 14, we are given a glimpse of what things could be like if a priest king ruled over the land of promise. This is really a glimpse. It's a, a foreshadowing of what it would be like for this priest king who feared God to rule over the land. And when Abram hears that Lot has been captured by the four powerful kings from the north and that they are heading back home, Abram responds like a king. He doesn't respond like he's a servant of these kings. He responds as if he is a king. Verse 14 says, When Abram heard that his kinsman, which in the Hebrew literally means his brother, he's talking about the closeness, the kinship. He says, One of my people had been taken captive. It says he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Abram is probably in his 80s at this point. We know he's older than 75, and we know he's younger than 86. So he's probably in his early 80s. And we understand, all the older gentlemen in the room, we understand he's aging slightly more di differently than, than uh, we do today. He, uh, God was very gracious to him. Um, but he is 80. 
And uh, this passage says that in his 80s, he led forth his warriors. This sounds more like the warrior King David leading his mighty men into battle than it does the scheming Abram who threw his wife under the bus in Egypt, which we learned about about two weeks ago, I believe. So this sounds more like the warrior King David. Abram joins forces with his allies. This is Memre, Eshkel, and Aner. These are his friends, his allies. And this combined force chases down the four kings from the north. Now we're not given the numbers like, like with Gideon and his 300 men who fought the, the invaders who were so, you know, filled the land like grasshoppers, it says, you know, it just says like this, this number, this, this army that couldn't even be counted is what we're told in the story of Gideon. We're not told this, what the numbers are, but it's pretty clear that the kings from the north have brought a huge, a large invasion army. They had defeated at least 11 kingdoms in Canaan. This powerful army has gone through the land like a, stream, like a steamroller and crushed everything in its path. But we read that Abram still pursues them. There is only one reason that Abram would take such a risk. He believed the promises of God to him. God had previously promised, I will bless you and make your name great. Him who dishonors you I will curse. These kings had stolen his nephew, his, one of his people, someone under his protection. Had they not cursed him by their actions? Had they not dishonored him by their actions? So God was going to bless him as he pursued them. God also promised, all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And God said, walk through the land, for I will give it to you. All these things stir up in Abram this confidence that God has given him this land, that God was with him, and that Abram's duty for God was to do the next, the next right thing by faith in the goodness of God. Abram pursues his enemies by faith in the promises of God, and God shows himself faithful to his word. God gives Abram a crushing victory over his enemies so that God's faithfulness would be put on public display for that generation and all generations to follow. This is doubtless in the mind of Moses as he writes Genesis. Remember, Je Moses writes Genesis 400 years later just before Israel invades the promised land, this land that God said He would give to them. They have been commanded by God to conquer the Canaanites and claim the land promised to Abram all those years before. Moses writes to, rem to remind Israel of the promise-keeping God. Moses records these words to give the slaves of Egypt. Remember, this is a generation of slaves, people who had been beat down and just followed orders all their lives. But Moses writes to give them hope and confidence in the faithfulness of their God, not their own strength, but the faithfulness of their God as they face off against the giants who lived in Canaan in their day. But Abram's faith, and the promise-keeping God was also recorded for us. It's not just for that one generation of Israelites that Moses was specifically writing to. These words were also written for us. The author of Hebrews, this is a letter in the New Testament, the author makes it very clear that Christians are to read these Old Testament sto stories, these Old Testament accounts of those who have gone before us, and we are to take courage that we are not alone in our struggles and that God is faithful in our battles. In Hebrews 11, we read of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abram, Sarai, and many others who all lived by faith in the promises of God. We are reminded that the followers of God in past generations conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, 
obtained promises, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. This is Hebrews 11.33 that I'm reading. And we, the church, are being reminded about all these historical things that God has done through people. And the passage says that they, these believers of all, they did all this by faith in the promises of God. By faith, which means hope, trust, confidence in the promises of God. And then the author of Hebrews goes on to apply these Old Testament battles, these victories with horse and sword and spear. He applies these types of victories to us, the church, by saying this. He says, therefore, since we, the church, are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. He's talking about Abel and Abram and Sarai and David. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, those who give testimony because of that, let us, Christians, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He's talking about just like Abram had to give up his fear, just like Abram had to give up his self-protection, his desire to protect himself and his own life and his own body, just like he had to put that aside, that fear, so we must put aside the things that are holding us back from Serving God by faith, by this complete confidence and hope in His faithfulness. And the author of Hebrews is saying that when we read these historical battles where God was faithful, we're supposed to think about this as faith in action. Not just something for the Israelites, not just something for the Jews about their grand nationalistic history, no. He says, we as Christians, as the people of God, should read these stories and see them as faith in action. And we are to plead with God to grant us faith and courage to reject fear, to stop coveting this world and to do the task that God has given us to do. We're to ask God for courage to lead our family. It could be something as simple as Bible reading, prayer, and leading our family in song and and family devotions. I mean, let's be honest. This takes courage the first few times you try it. And it's not going to go well the first few times probably. It's going to be a little bit of a struggle. But we are called to look at these stories and say, if Abram can chase down an army of invaders then I can, by faith in God, then I can embarrass myself by reading the Word and attempting to pray and leading my family in song. It takes courage, especially if you've gone for years without doing it as a Christian family. Young married men, if I can, just just give you this encouragement to start leading your families now because by the time you're 45, it will be 10 times harder to go back and undo the patterns of life you've begun now. There are many other things that God has given us to do. We go to work. We raise children. Sometimes God will give you the opportunity, and I pray He does this week, that He will give you the opportunity to tell a neighbor about how Jesus has saved you from your brokenness and sin. I pray He does that for each one of us this week. Maybe God has called you to rappel out of helicopters or teach a classroom of children or lead a Bible study. These things all take courage. And for me, teaching a classroom full of children would take the most courage, I think. And it is a high calling. But God's followers who have gone before us give us a brotherhood of believers who link arms with us in the faith and make us more courageous to face the troubles of life than we ever could have been on our own. I think about Pilgrim's progress. And when Pilgrim had friends with him, 
How much stronger was he, or sorry, when Christian had friends with him, how much stronger was he in the faith than when he was stumbling along on his own? You may think me foolish, but even this week as I was driving to the dentist's office, my thoughts went to Abram rushing into the enemy camp by night. <laughs> ah, you understand. I struggle with needles, let's be honest. My wife, I have been poked and prodded so many times. It's like my brain and my body combined, you know, they came together and they agreed that enough is enough. And now when I know there's a needle with my name on it, I start to break out in this cold sweat. I can feel the anxiety coming up here. And, and I don't realize it, but I'm clinching the, the armrests of the seat so tightly that I don't have any blood in my hands. Um, but as I drove through town to the dentist, I thought about the faith of Abram that I was just studying 20 minutes before that. And I thought about who he was placing his faith in. And I thought about the faithfulness of our God. Um, and I thought about this truth, and it, and it struck me. This, this struck me. If Abram could entrust his life and his body to the faithfulness of God as he charged into an enemy camp. I mean, think about how much courage it takes to put your foot in the stirrup of the saddle before ch charging into thousands of enemy warriors by night. It doesn't matter if you have an ambush prepared. Think about the, the courage and the faith in his God that he displayed in this story. If Abram could trust God with his life and body, then I can lay down my irrational fear of being jabbed in the jaw and entrust myself to the faithfulness of God. Maybe you love operations and surgeries, but my illustration is not the point. The point is that we all struggle with the fear of doing the next right thing. We all struggle to daily hope in the faithfulness of God and cast off irrational fear. Yes, I say irrational fear because if you are a child of God, if I am a child of God, then fearing this world and what man might do to us or the embarrassment of being shot down when I'm sharing the gospel or the embarrassment of trying to sing in front of my family the praises of my God, these are irrational fears if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ because he says that he has won the victory already that you are His, that you are in His hand, and no one can snatch you out of His and the Father's hand. So these fears that we struggle with, they're irrational fears, and we can cast them aside. As we read of believers who have run the race before us, like Abram in this story, our hope is renewed in their God who is faithful. The God who keeps his promises. This is why Moses records this account for all future worshipers of God. To give us courage and hope in the God who is faithful. No matter how trivial or how terrible the obstacles we face in this life. This is why Moses writes this. But in verses 17 through 20. Moses writes under the inspiration of God, meaning that God has led him to write down these words. And he writes of a mysterious person that I doubt Moses could even comprehend. Abram is bringing back to Canaan all the possessions and captives that he has rescued. And he comes to a valley near the city of Salem, which we said is Jerusalem in the future. And the king of Sodom is the king of of a different town. He comes out of hiding from the hills and he comes to Abram in hopes of regaining some of his losses. And Abram will end up giving him everything back. It's, it's as, as if Abram wants to wash his hands of anything belonging to the wicked kingdom of Sodom. But there is another mysterious person who comes out to meet Abram after this victory. The passage says, beginning in verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, or Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. 
And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, or could be translated creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This entire scene is so unexpected and brief that the reader is kind of left wondering, what just happened? Who is this guy? Why did, why did Abram, Abram give him stuff? Up until now, we would have assumed that Abram's family was the only God-fearing people in Canaan. And that's what Abram seems to have believed himself. But here we learn that the king of Salem is also priest of God Most High. This Melchizedek is a priest king who reigns and serves God in the city that would one day be Jerusalem. And then even more surprising, 80-year-old Abram is blessed by Melchizedek. And then Abram turns around and gives a tenth of all the spoils of war to Melchizedek. Both of these actions, the blessing and Abram paying a tenth, both these actions communicate that Melchizedek was a greater priest king than even Abram. The author of Hebrews, again in the New Testament, confirms this when he says, speaking of this encounter between Melchizedek and Abram, he says, it is beyond dispute that the inferior Abram is blessed by the superior, Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the superior, blesses Abram, who is inferior to him. Who is this man? Who is Melchizedek? And how is he greater? Is a, how is he a greater priest king than Abram, the one who received the promises directly from God and the covenant? The scripture never tells us Melchizedek's story. We don't know his ancestry, his descendants, or how long he lived. His name disappears as suddenly as it, as it appears. But 1,000 years after this battle scene and blessing, David conquers Jerusalem and becomes king of all Israel. And in many ways, David takes on the role of a priest king like Melchizedek himself. David built altars and made sacrifices to God. David once wore an ephod, which is a priestly garment. It was only for the priest while he led Israel in worship to God. And David interceded on behalf of his people. Once he even offered to lay down his own life if God would but spare his people. God is so pleased with David's priest kingly service that he makes a promise to David saying that one of his sons would rule God's people forever. With all of this in his mind, and with all these things happening, he has just conquered Jerusalem. He's serving as a priest king. God has said one of his sons will take up his mantle and will serve God forever as king priest, as priest king. While thinking on these things, and while in the Spirit, God inspires David to write this psalm. This is Psalm 110. It is the next time we hear the name Melchizedek. Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4. The Lord, which is Yahweh, so Yahweh says to my Lord, which is the word Adonai, which means master or king. This is David writing. Yahweh, creator God, the covenant God, says to my king, these are David's words, says to my king, God says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, Yahweh, sends forth from Zion, Jerusalem. He sends forth from Jerusalem, the son of David, this king's mighty scepter. This is his reign. The scepter is a picture of a reigning authority. Yahweh says, rule in the midst of your enemies. This is complete and utter control and power as a king is that your enemies bow to you. Verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be your, yours. Verse 4, the Lord Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. The son of David, this king, he says, you are a priest 
forever after the order of Melchizedek. David prophesies this about his future descendant, about his son. He calls him. There's three things that I want to point out. He says that, that this son of his, he calls him his Lord, his master, his king. That's completely upside down in Jewish culture, especially like kingly culture. The son is never greater than the father. Abram's descendants were never greater than Abram. That would be normal. But David calls him his king. Second, he says of his son, you are a divinely appointed king. God's Yahweh says, sit at my right hand. To sit on a throne is to rule. It's a sign of ruling. Yahweh says, sit until I make your enemies your footstool. Third, David says of his son, you are a priest forever like Melchizedek or after the order of Melchizedek. Here's the point. I know this might sound a little confusing, but here's the point. God is going to establish His priest king in the city of God forever. Similar. One who looks similar to Melchizedek all those years before. This is a thousand years later. So you may be wondering, why does it matter what type of, of, of priest the son of David is? Why does it matter that he be after the order of Melchizedek? Well, once again, the letter to the Hebrews written in the New Testament after, you know, this is now A.D., not B.C., this letter will give us the answer. The author of Hebrews spends 13 chapters proving to his readers that Jesus is better in every way. He will say things like this, beginning in Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 4. This is an example of how Jesus is better. He says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's talking about Abram, Moses, these guys who are prophets of God. Verse 2, But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also God, Yahweh, created the world. The Father created the world through His Son. Verse 3, He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he the son upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins he's talking about the cross after that the son sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high this picture of a ruling king verse 4 having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And this is the point of what the author of Hebrews is getting at, that Jesus is better. And he's going to repeat this saying that Jesus is better than angels, than Moses, even Joshua, that great warrior leader. He is greater than Joshua. Then in chapters 4 through 7, the author will prove to his readers, who are Jews, this is the letter to the Hebrews, the Jewish people, he's writing to them, and he is going to prove that Jesus is better than Abraham and better than the Levites, these priests, and even better than the high priest in Jerusalem who is directly descended by Aaron. That is what he's going to argue, and he proves it. Hebrews points out that the Levites in the Jewish sacrificial system were only a copy and a shadow of the heavenly reality. Even the temple in Jerusalem was made according to the heavenly pattern given by God. It was only meant to be a placeholder for what was the heavenly reality. And when Jesus arrives, He reveals 
what has been going on in heaven all along. Jesus fulfills the requirements of the temporary, the purpose of the temple in Jerusalem and the sacrificial system and the priests and the high priests. He fulfills that. He fulfills the temporary and he reveals the eternal. Jesus is not a high priest like Aaron. Aaron was temporary. Aaron was sinful. And Aaron needed to sacrifice animals for his own sins. And so did every high priest after him. No, Jesus is a priest king according to the order, or you could say according to the pattern of Melchizedek. And you may ask, what pattern is Melchizedek following? Who does he resemble? Hebrews 7, verse 1 through 3 tells us. Going back all the way to our story is what he's referencing here. Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Verse 2. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He, Melchizedek, is first by translation of his name. He's saying this is the meaning of his name. It is King of Righteousness. And then he is also King of Salem. That is King of Peace. That's what Salem means. Peace. Shalom. The peace. King of Righteousness and King of Peace. Verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, He continues a, continues a priest forever. And there's the key phrase, Melchizedek, Melchizedek, who is just a man. He resembles, or He patterns, He pictures, He is a picture of the Son of God who continues a priest forever. God wrote Genesis 14. The master storyteller wrote Genesis 14, and he didn't give Melchizedek ancestry, parents. It didn't say, and he lived 120 years and he died. It's not because he didn't have parents or because he didn't die one day. It's because he was a shadow. He was a picture. He is a pointer to something greater than him. He is a pointer to the priest, the Son of God. Who was in heaven. God writes Genesis 14 in such a way as to use a man, Melchizedek, Melchizedek, to hint at the eternal Son who has served and is now serving as high priest in the heavenly temple before God the Father. Yes, I intentionally said he has served. He came to earth and now he is serving as high priest in heaven. The Son of God has served as high priest since the creation of the world. How else could Adam and Eve be forgiven? How else could Noah be declared blameless? How else could Abram be counted as righteous before God? How could Melchizedek resemble the Son of God as a priest forever? unless the Son of God was already interceding for His people in heaven all the way since the creation of the world. The eternal Son of God was interceding for His people since the creation of the world, crying out before the throne of the Father, saying, Father, let Your people live. I will go for them. They are covered in my blood, for the cross is as good as done. The price will be paid. And do not think of God the Father as begrudging His Son this. No, the Father says, let it be so, for it has been my will from the beginning, and I will send you into the world. And when the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among men as Jesus... He was fulfilling the plan from the very beginning. He became the great high priest who didn't just sacrifice animals for the people. No, he became the great high priest who laid down his own life for the sins 
of his people once for all, for all eternity and for all who will come. Jesus is the heavenly king of righteousness and king of peace. And Jesus is the heavenly high priest who lived, died, rose again, and now is seated next to the Father on high. There is no one greater, no one who understands your weaknesses more clearly, no one who loves you more, no one closer to the throne of the Father. There is no curtain between Him and God Most High, and there is no one more eager for you to be forgiven and have peace with God. Hebrews 4, 14-16 sums up the matter clearly, and I will end with this. Verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, not just a curtain, he passed into heaven, through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Because of this, let us hold fast our confession. That means let us hold fast our faith in Jesus the Christ. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He lived life as a man and he suffered and there is no temptation that you are facing or battle that you are struggling through that he has not fought off before. He has suffered in every respect and tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we, His people, that we may receive mercy and and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word and how You have revealed to us this story. The story of you redeeming a people for your name through your son. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus who came and became our high priest who laid down his life. I thank you, Lord, that we have a high priest who is before you, who is one with you. And that you have given us the privilege to come boldly to him. Lord, would you give us mercy and may we find grace to help in time of need. Thank you, Lord, for your love for your church. May we all go out of here with joy. May no one leave this morning without the hope of knowing that Jesus is their Savior, that Jesus has saved them from their sins, that they have found mercy and that they have grace from God. Because only those who have been forgiven are allowed to call upon the Son for grace and for help in time of need. Oh Lord, may your name be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.